0: One verse here in John, and I'm going to read in Second Peter as well. One verse in each location, and then we'll pray. John chapter 3, verse number 16. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Second Peter chapter 3, and verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long suffering, long suffering to us, Lord, not willing that any should perish, perish, but that all should come to repentance. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we certainly do love you, and Lord, we ask for your help tonight as uh, we begin to look at uh, this doctrine of Calvinism. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be strong in truth and and to understand why we believe what we believe. You'd protect us from false doctrine, protect us from those things uh, that could hurt our walk with you. And Lord, so help tonight, guide in the teaching and the preaching, Lord, I pray it be true to your word, and I pray for your blessing. I pray this in Christ's name, amen. It has been, I did this series uh, back August of 2015, Um, and uh, so it's been seven and a half years since I have did the series on Calvinism here. I probably should do it more than once every seven years, probably about once every five years. And I remember even going through it last time there there were there was one active person in the church at the time who was actually reading a lot of Calvinistic material and was pretty much swallowed up with it at that time when it hit. And sometimes you never know what you're reading And what you're getting into. But let let me start off going back where I began to notice the strong push towards the doctrine of Calvinism. And tonight, again, is just going to be an overview. I'm just going to overview it. And then we will get into the tulip of Calvinism. If you don't know what that is, you will before this message is over. We'll get into the tulip of Calvinism um, either next week or when I get back from South Korea. Um, So, anyhow, August of... 2005, uh, Marianne was pregnant with Levi, and so we flew to Australia for his birth, to Cairns, Australia. We, we had known of a good church there, a missionary that was actually there from the States. He was a, a Bob Jones grad, and uh, I heard good things about him. I was excited to go there. It was Trinity Baptist Church in Cairns, Australia. And so we went there on a Sunday morning and had a pretty decent service. We went back that Sunday night and they had the brand new assistant pastor was just starting a series for the church. Daniel was in front of me. I don't know if you remember that message that night. He's sitting right in front of me and Daniel was already, he was 15 at the time, well, Fourteen at the time, I guess it actually would have been. Got my timing wrong there, he i been fourteen at the time. I actually already had him in the Bible College classes that I was teaching there, and I actually just happened to have finished a short little series. Bible College you just run over it very quickly, and so he was there for that. And the assistant pastor is preaching and teaching and without ever saying the word Calvinism. Uh, that teaching was very Calvinistic. Matter of fact, Daniel even turned around to me and said. Dad, is he teaching Calvinism? I said, he is. And so later that week, I had lunch with the pastor. And we had a lunch set up, and I was a missionary in from New Guinea, and so we got together for lunch. We had lunch. Lunch was over with. We were visiting at his house. And I happened to bring the subject up. I said, your Sunday night service, I said, your new assistant pastor, I said, that service seemed very Calvinistic. And I said, oh, it is. He said, oh, it was. He goes, I'm switching the church over to Calvinism right now and he pulls out a book by man, a book by a man of the name of John Piper and many of you are familiar with John Piper and it was a book designed for pastors on how to switch your church over to calvinism now, within, it, within independent Baptist churches, this was one of the first times I came across it. I was aware that this was becoming a very strong movement within the Southern Baptist culture. They, were, they actually had two battles taking place. They were almost reactions off of each other. You had multitudes of their churches heading towards an emergent direction, but you then had another significant amount of their churches heading very far away, actually, from the emergent direction, but going into Calvinism. And that had much to do with some of the leadership that was there. And, and some of these men are really good men. By the way, I don't, I don't believe because somebody believes in Calvinism that they're lost. I, I, don't, I don't think that. Charles Spurgeon was a Calvinist. Um, there's some good men who have held to that. And, and I'll cover probably when I get into it, John, uh, Charles Spurgeon and his Calvinism. Um, so that was the first time I came across it. But it would, it would, I would come across it much more in the weeks to come, little did I know. And so anyhow, when I got back to the States after Levi's birth, I got to, I, had, I had a conversation with a missionary that I knew very well in, uh, in New Guinea. And he had called, and he was just upset and distraught. And his son-in-law, his son-in-law, who was faithful in church, was now embracing Calvinism. After that, I talked with a supporting pastor who this church knows very well. And exact same thing, distraught. His son-in-law has just embraced Calvinism. I then decided to do a quick blog post. I started a blog at the time, and I had a grand total of 17 followers, and I think 16 of those were just my mom with different names following my blog. <laughs> um, and that was, that was really about all I had. I was mainly writing it just so I'd have the stories to remember remember back on, which I got a Rachel, she's watching this. She's actually already assembled all those for me. I just have to sit down and go through and edit what she did, and then we can actually have those all compiled in, in one book. And um, so I decided to write the blog post on Calvinism. It, again, I have a readership of about 17, and like, it was very small at the time. And so I, I didn't pay much attention to it. It wasn't quality writing by any means, but nonetheless, I wrote on the threat that I see from Calvinism. It was a generic post. I didn't get anything specific into the tulip. And I wrote it and I sent it out. Um, posted it uh, on my blog. And if you remember back in that time frame of 2000, um, what year were you born? 2005. Um, that blogs was the big thing. I think in 2005, even times person of the year was the blogger. Um, they were just exploding onto the scene. And uh, about a week or so had passed... And I woke up, head to my office, which was underneath our house there in New Guinea, and I get in, and I have got a bazillion emails. I'm like, what in the world? Multitudes of pastors. And I start reading these, and I am getting bashed just for my post on Calvinism. I'm like, one, how do people even know I put it out there? And there was a a very popular, very well-read blog called the Calvinist Gadfly, which was in support of Calvinism. And they had decided to take my post and put it on their cover and critique it with all my grammatical mistakes. Most of their arguments, by the way, were strawman arguments about how I could write and not deal with the depth of my arguments. But that's a side note. Um, And so, thus it began. Um, And so, I put a challenge out there. I said, you know what, I'll start with it and let's, let's, let's begin to go through this. And, matter of fact, during that, there was a Presbyterian pastor from Ireland. He was one of the men following uh, what was taking place. And so he went ahead and created on his webpage. I think it's gone now. I tried to find it. This is, again, going back to 2005. Um, he had a whole section on his church's page called McGovernism. <laughs> And what he did was, he was refuting my arguments against Calvinism, is what he was doing on his page. We actually began private correspondence back and forth with each other. We actually became friends throughout all of that. If I ever make it to Ireland, I actually will look him up and and try and find him. Um, But nonetheless, this was when I was realizing, wow, Calvinism is definitely on a strong resurgence. And I was wondering why. Why is it taking off now? Because it really was. I think there were several factors as to why Calvinism was taking stronghold again in the United States. One reason would be a reaction against what was finally coming to light against quick prayerism. All right, Multitudes of people were... Listen, you don't have to have a degree in theology to realize when a church says we've had 4,000 saved this week and they grow by one, that something's wrong. You just, something should trigger in your brain, something's not right with this, all right? And and for the most part, we also had at the same time in a lot of our churches, there was a, there, and I'm not being mean, it's just the reality of the situation. I was part of it. it, was a shallowness in the preaching. I mentioned it many times. It was a problem we had. You, you had, you could almost tell every single time what was going to come from the pulpit. Um, it would be a message on... You know, soul-winning standards, separation, King James—all those are needed. I don't have a problem with any of those. But that's all it was. There was there was expository preaching, which I believe is critical. Please understand, I do, I really do. We're going to get that next week. And we're going to see where Paul uses that word in Acts 17. Um, was at times even mocked, mocked, just a, just incredible, and. And so you, you had that, that level, that was it. And, and anyhow, I, and it was almost like it was a rebellion against what was taking place, the errors of it, and I believe that created a vacuum in which the Calvinists gladly came in and assumed their place. Um, <clears throat> I believe we struggled at the time with pride becoming a motivation for our service instead of the love for God. Our methods were simply focused on getting people to pray prayer, getting people in the pew, um, much of what we did was based on manipulation, was based on psychology instead of the convicting work of God's Holy Spirit. Again, I believe as Christians began realizing we have major problems, um, I believe the doctrine of Calvinism was there to provide an answer. There's other reasons as well. Along this time, you had two very prominent men within who were Calvinists that began on a much more bold front to proclaim it. And that would be men like John MacArthur and John Piper. Um, both men, if you, if you know anything of them, John MacArthur is one of the best expositors of the Word of God there is. But he's also a very strong Calvinist. Um, it appealed to the intellectual side of the house, even to a prideful side of the house. Then at a time when many were tired of the shallowness that was in the preaching, you actually had a, more of a, uh, more to this, more meat to this. Today's Calvinists, even if you say you're not a Calvinist, they like to try and pigeonhole you into saying that you have to be either a Calvinist or an Arminiist. I am neither. I disagree completely with both of those. If you're not familiar with with what an Arminianist is, it's it is it is an argument. Shortly, really after the death of John Calvin, there was a theology rising that was sh- strongly against um, Calvinism, and in. Anyhow, that, that be, those who followed that teaching became known as Arminius. So they also lumped together anybody who was against Calvinism as an Arminius, but we certainly are not. A true Arminius believes that you could lose your salvation. They believe that you are not once saved, that you are eternally saved by God, which is exactly what takes place. If God has saved you, he has saved you. I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. But this is not a teaching on that. So what I want to do over the next several weeks is, is go over and break down Calvinism is put into a tulip, into five different points. I'll get more into that in a little bit and hope to strengthen our church and protect it against this doctrine and protect uh, our, our families against it. And uh, so I want to get into this overview about Calvinism. First off, what is Calvinism? Calvinism is a systematic theology system centering on the gospel. It was developed by a man named John Calvin, thus the name. And I'll, I'll, I will finish up talking about who this man was, John Calvin. I'll get into his life. John Calvin wrote a, a series of books that are called Calvin's Institutes. And this is where he developed his theological system that would become known as Calvinism. Calvinism, again, is broken down into the TULIP. The TULIP stands for the T. It's an acronym. Total depravity, the U, unconditional election, the L, limited atonement, the I, irresistible grace, P, perseverance of the saints. There are some uh, independent Baptists who say we could agree with both the T of Calvinism and the P, the perseverance of the saints. There is perseverance of the saints. You can agree on none of these, not perseverance of the saints uh, and not total depravity, and we'll see that as we get into each one. So, when you put this teaching of Tulip together, you have something that presents a danger to the true gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And they claim it would not affect missions, it would not affect evangelism. They proclaim that loudly and strongly. But there's simply no way that can be true. It will affect it. Calvin took God's sovereignty to such a degree that God was, in fact, In his writings, the author of sin. Many Calvinists try to get, some Calvinists hold to that, they have no trouble agreeing to that. Sometimes they're referred to as hyper-Calvinists, you'll hear that term. But really, I, I refer to them just as honest Calvinists. If you believe what Calvin wrote, there's no way around that. You would have to believe God is the author of sin. The teaching of Tulip leads to the teaching that Christ only died for the elect. So, well, what do you mean by that? Well, the elect are people that God selected in eternity past. Only those who got elected to salvation will be saved, not one other person. If you are not one of the elect, you can never be saved, never. There is no hope for you. This all leads to the conclusion that in reality, our preaching of the gospel does not really matter to the lost, because whoever God elected, they're getting saved. Whatever happens, they're going to get. That's it's it's been determined by con by God, because those who have been elected to salvation will come to the Lord regardless of what happens. All those who are not elected to salvation will never be saved, regardless as well. This. The, there's also been, I want you to understand this, there's also been, along with Calvinism, there's been another resurgence of a strong teaching, that of lordship salvation. Okay? 100% of Calvinists follow lordship salvation. But not everybody that believes lordship salvation follows Calvinism. But what we have seen take place hand in hand with the rise of Calvinism is the rise of lordship salvation. Lordship salvation is the belief of the necessity of a, of, of, which sounds good at the surface, but it does get down to a work salvation. That is uh, of, of turning from all sin, not sinning, making Christ Lord of your life. Now, don't worry, if you're saved, Christ will be Lord of your life. You will desire to serve Him. Anybody who says, I can do what I want, they claim to be saved, and they say, listen, I can live how I want. I'm saved. I'm saved forever. They're not saved. That's all there is to it. They're not saved. Period. They're not. That's because when you truly are saved, you have a desire for God. You desire Him. But Lordship salvation is, and, that's, and I've taught on that in the past in much more detail on Lordship salvation. I will not be getting into that. Maybe once I finish this, I'll, I'll, Calvinism, I'll, I'll get into Lordship salvation. <clears throat> um, uh, let's see. Where am I at here in my notes? Uh, The modern missionary movement that we see taking place is interesting. Calvinism's place within it was by a man named William Carey. If you're familiar with who William Carey is, he is the man who really launched a lot of this. And he was challenged greatly by the Calvinists of his day. Now, William Carey himself was a Calvinist. All right. But as you can see, he had great problems with their theology. Basically, if you were in Europe at this time, you were a Calvinist. All right, that, it, just, it, just went hand in, it just went hand in hand. Um, when he announced that he was going to, going to travel abroad to reach the world, he was, he was an Englishman, by the way. Um, this is what he was told. I have the direct quote when he met with the board, him wanting to get support to go and reach the lost. He was told, young man, sit down. You are an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. See, what William Carey read was he knew he had the responsibility to go. But these men, that wasn't needed. Why? Calvinism. Who's going to be saved is going to be saved. Who's going to be lost is going to be lost. But the fact is, the Bible teaching is for all who will come to know Christ, not an elect group will be saved. Whosoever will, as we read. That is throughout. And we will cover. They read that and they have their arguments again. If you like to meet anybody who likes to argue, it will be a Calvinist. It will be. Um, they live for the argument. And honestly, if you're not prepared to argue them, do not. Do not. They are ready for you, I promise you. I remember the first argument I get into. This is before I realized the resurgence. That's Back when I was an assistant pastor and I worked with a guy when I was in management. He was the assistant pastor at uh, Bruin Park, at Bruin Park, and wholly bought into Calvinism. And so we would get into the debates there at work when, when we could privately. We would get into the debates privately with each other at the time. <clears throat> um And right now, I know of no leading Calvinist that proclaims like that board did. Sit down, Lord, didn't him. I don't. That that's true. But if this thing continues to take hold and gets the stronghold like it did in Europe, we will be hearing those voices just the same. It's the obvious conclusion when you when you remove the necessity that it's as Paul said, uh, uh, due to the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. I think it's Second Corinthians or First Corinthians. The text, the reference is leaving my mind right now. The fact was, Calvinism up until that time was greatly hindering the furtherance of the gospel in the world. We read 2 Peter 3.9 how God is not willing that any should perish. That's a truth. John 3.16, for God so loved the elect. For God so loved the world that whosoever. Look at Romans chapter 5 with me this evening. Romans chapter 5. I got into a... a uh, This is going back when I was really getting into Calvinism off of the blog to partake in a uh, debate with a Calvinist on a, on a Baptist forum called... Uh, Online baptism which one it was, all Independent Fundamental Baptists. So they're going to allow me to debate with one of the Calvinists. And it would just be us two in the discussion with the others following it. The debate never got finished because of Romans chapter 5. The administrator of the debate ended it at this point. I was not happy because my answer was never given. Romans chapter 5, and I'll get more into Romans 5 as we get into this. If I could just find the book of Romans, I might be able to get there. Here we go. Let's look at the truth that we see in Romans chapter 5. Let's start down, let's start in verse 15. And in the online forum, what I did was I was using Romans chapter 5 as we went through a, a certain amount of points and then I'd asked the, the man this. I said, I want to ask you a series of questions. And I said, all I want is a yes or no answer. I said, after you give a yes or no answer, then you can explain all you like. And he agreed. And so what I did was I took him through these verses asking yes or no questions. And he could explain his yes or no if he so desired. Let's look at these verses. Let's start in verse 15. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. That's referring to salvation. For through the offense of one, many be dead. Much more, the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. Now let me ask you this question. If Those of you who know Romans chapter 5, verses like Romans five twelve, even the prior verse to this one. The offense of one that led to death is referring to what one man? Adam. And then the, the gift of free life, one man, is referring to who? Jesus Christ. Okay? Verse 16. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation. What's that referring to? That's right, Adam. By one to condemnation. Because Adam sinned, that's why we sin. Look at 5.12, Wherefore is by one man sinned into the, the world? That's Adam, so death by sin. And, 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 and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Okay? But the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. Now, because of Adam's one sin, follow me here, that went upon some men or all men. It went upon all men. Verse 17. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. When I got to the questions of verse 18, that's when it was shut down. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men. Underline all men. I asked the question. I said, the all here by definition. I know how Calvinists argue. They like to argue all doesn't mean all in certain situations. So contextually, I asked him here. I said, this all right here, I said, is it all men or is it a group? And as soon as he agreed it was all men, I knew I had him. It was done. Finish the verse. Even so, by the righteousness of one, who's that one? Jesus Christ. The free gift came upon what? All men. Unto justification of life. So when I asked the question, the second all, is it all men? Or just a few? Administrator came in. We're going to stop the debate here. And I was like, no. But nonetheless, the point was made. Everybody that read it was, you could see it right there. But the point of Romans 5.18 is this. The free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. Not some. The truth is, with the verses we just looked at, we could end the series on Calvinism. You would have to remove those from the Bible for Calvinism to be true. But we will get into their arguments and what they say about these different verses, so that you're aware. We have other verses like 1 John Uh, Chapter 2 and verse 2, where he is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. Not just some. Jesus died for all. But make no mistake, it is very true, his death is not effectual for all. His death is only effectual, it only saves when that repentance and faith in Christ comes into play. We have other verses like Acts chapter 10 and verse 43. If you remember, as we're going through the book of Acts, and there with Cornelius and we have the great statement, the Gentiles are, "Whosoever!" it's throughout. Whosoever?" It really is clear as a bell. You say, so then, why do they believe it? Hmm. For that, we have to look at John Calvin himself. So let's get into who this man was, John Calvin. And I am amazed by those who claim to believe in Calvinism and yet know so little about the man who is the author behind it. Now, there are some who follow Calvinism and will try and disassociate themselves from the man, John Calvin. I don't see how you can do that. Some do. Some still embrace him. Some still very much um, embrace him. And they just dismiss some of the obvious arguments. Because when you do read him, I have his comment. Uh, you know, I've, I have not read through all the institutes. I have the institutes on computer. I've read through them, but not all. Of them. There are times he makes statements that I completely agree with, but then he will completely contradict himself. Um. So let's let's dive into him a little bit. Um. And it, the tulip itself, in all fairness to John Calvin. It's completely based on his writings, 100%. It, it came around on the acronym form about 50 years actually after his death. It was when it was put into that acronym form of his teaching. Um, and that was just in response to the Arminianism because they developed a five-point system to refute Calvinism. So then they, the Calvinists, developed a five-point system uh, uh, for their arguments and that became known as the Tulip. John Calvin, born in 1509 in France... He was born into a very strong Catholic family. His father worked as an advisor to the bishop, which, if you know anything about the Catholic Church, that's a major role. At the age of 12, he was put on the payroll. would stay there until he would leave the church about 13 years after this. <clears throat> when he went to college, he was very much known for his studies. He was diligent. He was smart. He was known for his morals. He was a good man. In 1528, though, things began to change. The Catholic church, church excommunicated his father. That did not sit well. Shortly after that church, excommunic- they excommunicated John's brother, who was a priest. John's dad then had, uh, um, had him leave off his studies for the pre- priesthood and head to a university to get a law degree, which is what he finished, was a law degree. After graduating, though, once he finished with his law degree, there was a sweeping movement taking place in Europe, led by a man named Martin Luther. The Protestant movement was taking hold. John Calvin read many of Luther's sermons and became a a, a follower, if you will. He began to support Luther, and this led to him personally leaving the Catholic Church. It was one year after his decision to leave the Catholic Church that he finished his institutes. I want you to think about that for a second. Raised in a strong Catholic family. He gets a hold of messages by Luther. Let's just say he did get converted there. Maybe that's possible. I honestly hope he did. I have doubts and you'll see why. But let's just say he did. The institutes were finished not started finished a year from that point there has been zero time for christian growth and he's writing a series of theological books on on the gospel itself that should raise a major red flag Understand this. That means, and I'm going to tie it together with a person that he was a devout follower of here in a minute. That means that when he was writing the Institutes, very much all of his Catholic teaching is still very present in his mind. It has not had time to get weeded out. Calvin, in all of his writings, never gives a clear testimony of salvation of faith in Christ alone. He frequently referred to his baptism as a baby... Or salvation I'm going to quote him this is still after his quote conversion at whatever time we are baptized we are washed and purified once for the whole of life we must recall our baptism so as to feel certain and secure of the remission of sins it wipes and washes away all our defilements no it doesn't it is the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that wipes away our sin baptism is a symbol of picture of your salvation. Water doesn't clean you. It's telling everybody, I believe Christ died for me, was buried, and rose again. Somebody forgot to tell the thief on the cross that baptism saves. Or the Lord. The Lord shouldn't have said that. Oh, I would love to save you, but you know, it's not faith alone. Here is a quote from Calvin. Around the time of his conversion to Luther's Protestant, he was really a convert to Luther than he was more to Christ. Um, This is referring to those who left the Catholic Church and were baptized after a profession of faith in Christ by immersion. This is the context of Calvin's quote. So he's talking about those who did leave the Catholic Church, made a profession of faith in Christ alone, and then followed up with baptism by immersion, which is exactly how it should be taking place. Here's a quote from him. One should not be content with killing such people but should burn them cruelty. Cruelly, excuse me. That's from a letter he wrote in 1533. In 1537, Calvin banished those who were baptized by immersions and all Baptists from his city in 1537. What was Calvin's influence when he wrote and I'll, I'll finish up with this and I'll be done today. Calvin was, in his writings, it's very clear, he makes no mistake about it, he doesn't hide it or anything. He was an enormous fan of a man who's considered a church father, a man by the name of Augustine. Augustine, if we went through our Bible college, we label him as the father of corrupt theology. Uh, he was, his, his institutes, as you go through them, it, it's clear. He's basically expounding upon Augustine's teaching is what he's doing. Um, Augustine was a huge, the writings of Augustine were a huge influence in the life of John Calvin. Much of the tenets that were developed by him were developed actually by Augustine in the 4th and 5th century. Um, Calvin's, or excuse me, Augustine perhaps his greatest work was a, a book by the title of The City of God. Um, you've probably heard of that. Um, by the way, that's where you, Augustine, is, you also have the formation of different doctrines, uh, for instance, amillennialism. Which is the belief that there's not going to be a literal kingdom, but that the church is the kingdom. Um, that, that was what was getting developed by Augustine. Um, Calvin's belief in trying to understand the sovereignty of God, that was influenced greatly by Augustine. so, Calvin was a student of the Latin Vulgate, the Catholic Bible, and Augustine when he wrote his institutes. Calvin himself referred to himself as an Augustine theologian. That is correct. That's exactly what he was. And so... We'll finish up there today. When we get back into this next Sunday night, or when I get back, I might just do another message Sunday night and, and jump into this when I return from Korea. We'll take, we'll take the next, it'll take me six weeks to cover it probably, um, definitely six. I think I can do it in six, um, that we will cover the tool. The unconditional election will take two weeks to cover. The others I'll try and cover in one service each time, and, uh, and to go from there. All right, with heads bowed and eyes closed here this evening. Now, this evening certainly was teaching and and just an overview. But I want to ask an important question tonight. And that is, if you were to die right now, where would you go? Where would you go? One day you will die and you will stand before Almighty God. And He will judge you. That will take place. The Bible says it's appointed appointment once to die, but after this, the judgment. God will judge you. The problem you have is this, is that when he judges you, it's going to be based upon his law, and you've broken it. All those who are guilty are cast into hell, every single one. But God loves you so much that he provided a way of escape of that judgment. And how he did it is incredible. He himself became a man 2,000 years ago. God in the flesh. The Lord Jesus Christ. And he walked on this earth as a man. And he was perfect. The only one who's ever lived without committing one sin. Perfection. Which is God's requirement. That's like we read in Romans chapter 5. Where the disobedience of one death reigned. Referring to hell. But by the obedience of one, that perfect life, oh, salvation has a free gift. You see, he lived that perfect life for you. When he went to the cross, what he was doing was literally taking your place, dying in your place, taking your sin upon himself. He was suffering your punishment for sin. And then he has also giving you his perfect life. He died for you. But hell did not hold him because Jesus is God. After three days and three nights, he defeated death and rose again. If you'll come to him in repentance and faith, he'll save you right there. June 30th, 1982 is when I heard that and I put my faith in Christ alone. Is there anyone here that says, Pastor, please, I I want you to Please pray for me. I'm not certain when I die I'm going to heaven. I don't know what's going to happen. I hear you right now, and I don't know what's going to happen. I'm worried I would go to hell, or I just don't know. If that's you, would you just raise your hand where I could see it? I won't call you out. Just raise your hand. If you raise it, I missed it. I see some small children throughout. That's all I'm seeing right now. Just do it again where I could see it. All right, Christian. If the Lord spoke to your heart, you have something else you need to come and pray about tonight. Certainly come and pray. Father in heaven, bless this invitation, Lord. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand to our feet. Page 457. If you need to come and pray, you come and pray.